Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Sammy Joe Small has guts. As a young girl in Manitoba, she held her own playing goal with the boys when there was no all-girls leagues. An excellent athlete, she earned a full track and field NCAA scholarship to Stanford, where she competed in discus and javelin while studying to become a mechanical engineer. She was also a netminder on the school's men's club team. Then in December 1997, Team Canada came calling in a way she wasn't expecting. At 21, it shaped her life, and we will discuss the ways in which it did when she joins us to converse about the role I played, her memoir, which is being released on September 29th by ECW Press. But before she does, and Nate delves further into her story, here's a brief bio. Sammy was part of three Olympic, Olympic teams from 1998 to 2006 that won silver and two gold. And on the O2 Salt Lake team, she was uh, the backup to Kim St. Pierre. She has the distinction of winning a world championship, Olympic gold, and a Clarkson Cup title, which she did in 2014 with the Toronto Furies. At two of those world championships, she was named best goalie of the tournament. Nate? Indeed. Uh, Sammy Joe Small obviously became a household name by stopping pucks, but she really uh, unleashes some chill darts from the point in this uh, candid memoir uh, that really tells you about the journey and the sacrifices and the you know the opportunity cost that an athlete goes through to get to that outcome we all all want to see which in her case was the Canadian national women's hockey team winning a Olympic gold medal and there's no second there's no second place place uh, for them in a in a sport where they they and the uh, team USA have you know dominated for the last 30 years uh and of, and of course, we find out through the reading that sometimes the ultimate reward, you know, comes with conditions. Uh, in Sammy Joe's case, it was the fact that in 2002 in Salt Lake, she had to be on the bench as the backup goalie in that, that intense uh, gold medal game against the Americans. And sometimes for an athlete, just surviving and hanging on and, you know, beating out the competition is that ends up being the reward. Uh, reading this book, I really got the sense of how deep that cuts for the players in women, in women's hockey. I think it comes back to a kind of patriarchal precarity in, in the hockey universe. Now, it's not like it's easy easy for a male player, but if they get released from a team, then the league is probably big enough that there's going to be an, another team that, where they can find a spot, or there'll be another le- league. Uh, at Christmas time every year, we see the those you know nineteen year olds with tears streaming down their cheeks after getting cut from the Canadian men's junior team. But that guy has the prospect of NHL riches on the horizon. It's, it's important to keep that in mind. Noth- nothing like that has become available to female hockey players yet. You know, it's Team Canada or bust, and you know, for international play and the, the development of a women's league with you know full time pay. That's, you know, that's lagged behind uh, basketball and soccer. You know, the National Women's Hockey League says they pay their players about an average of $20,000 U.S., but I heard an interview on the Offside Hockey Podcast with Taylor Woods, Sammy Joe Small's fellow Manitoban, where she's like, well, I basically play for gas money and maybe a a few free sticks. And that league only has six teams. And so there's like probably a bottleneck every year because there's so many good players coming out of NCAA and uh, Canadian university hockey. Um, So with with all that, you know, even if a player who's a household name because she was at the Olympics can be SOL PDQ. I think there's one passage where Sammy Joe Small relates. Here she was at an event as an Olympic gold medalist meeting the prime minister of Canada at the time, Jean Chrétien. And finding out that her club team was going forward with another goaltender for the upcoming season. And, of course, she shares stories about her and Jennifer Botterill putting in, like, basically full-time hours working out of their apartment to try to get the the Canadian Women's Hockey League off the ground in in 2007. Uh, So there's a lot of, you know, emotions in this book. Uh, Sammy Joe Small describes it very well. You can almost feel like, you know, that thing, you know, that dam burst inside someone's chest when... A teammate such as Delaney Collins, who was an all-star one year at the Worlds but never got to go to the Olympics, gets told, I'm sorry, we're, we're going on, on without you. Uh, it reminds us that, you know, being an athlete is one of the toughest ways to attain a privileged life, but there's always a good chance to come out the other side, and I guess that comes from personal development. Uh, 
one passage that stuck with me was when Sammy Joe relates what her emotional state was after that 2002 gold medal. And, uh, you know, that was that was was the highest of the high, but it developed, but it changed her in other ways. As she wrote, my Olympic experience changed me. I'm more intensely aware of sadness, more empathetic to others, and more aware of the necessity to create my own happiness. I don't think we typically associate those emotions with the highest of highs that is winning an Olympic gold medal. Like it's, you think that's that's a, you know a reward you know most of us will never experience, right? We don't think it's something that becomes a prompt to learning to pick up on sadness. But there it is, and that touches on why I believe this is a book that's really worth picking up if you have an interest in girls and women being you know fully valued in hockey. Uh, Sammy Joe Small's the really the perfect person <laughs> to write it because she you know was right at that part of that generation of you know North American hockey women who grew up in the 80s typically being the girl on a boys team they had to ask their parents to let them play hockey they weren't signed up automatically when the, when they were six years old like most like many boys were and then they went on from that to you know develop the talent and the drive to get on the national team radar and stay there and help that team you know, Team Canada of the 90s and aughts break down the everyday sexism that discouraged girls and women from getting on the ice. And now that generation of Team Canada women, they have their post-playing careers, they have families, but they're probably still, you know, working to, you know, smash that glass ceiling uh, and trying to be mindful about making sure that the COVID-19 pandemic does not set back, you know, all that hard-won progress towards inclusion because history tells us that some groups you know face more fallout than others when when there's a calam calamity and of course sammy joe was a goalie so then goalies often make the best analysts because they they have to watch about five things at once where's the puck where are the players on my team in relation to the puck can they get there if this happens and where you know where's the you know an opposing forward you know lurking uh the role i played contains a lot of vivid details about team canada's infamously grueling training camps all these moments when they were kind when all these sort of strong self-possessed sports women had to were pushed to a breaking point where they had to show vulnerability we're better off for for reading about that uh now before we go on and bring in our guest uh we got we must signal boost the offside podcast i think i mentioned it earlier they're covered right now right now they're covering the sort of seldom told history of women who overcame discrimination in the 1970s and 80s to re-establish female hockey in canada uh, the podcast builds off a memoir of the same name by Rhonda Taylor, a player and administrator who got started in hockey right in Kingston with a team called the Kingston Red Barons. Uh, they're, so they're currently interviewing the people who were there when all that happened. So just search Offside Women's Hockey on Spotify, since there are a lot of sports podcasts called Offside. Uh, anyways, back to you, Neil. Thank you, Nate. And uh, just before we continue, uh, sportslit.ca, check it out. This is Season 4, Episode 4, today with Sammy Joe Small, and you can find that on our website, sportslit.ca, um, as well as your regular podcast channels, whether that is iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. It's probably there and on it. Uh, so, um, yeah, without further ado, we're going to talk to Sammy Joe Small. All right, well, we're back on Sports Lit, and we are pleased to be joined by Sammy Joe Small today. Sammy, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today on Sports Lit. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Sammy, uh, I want to get right into it. Um, I want you to explain, uh, and both me and Nate have read the book, so um, explain how your life changed in profound ways after you failed to qualify for a, a track and field competition and then traveled to Calgary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first off, thank you for reading it. I appreciate it. Um, it's, I think every person has moments that they look back on and realize that it did profoundly change their lives. But at the time, I didn't know it. And at the time, I had uh, was attempting to make the national senior team in track and field in uh, discus and javelin and uh, ended up triple faulting, which means that you don't even get a score and was uh, terrible at the competition. And I just, I had become oversaturated with track and field. I was on a full scholarship at Stanford uh, to do that. So the pressures were enormous and I just wanted a little break. And um, 
so I decided to travel to Calgary and stay with a friend of mine, one of my good friends growing up, Jillian Russell, lived out there, hang out with her and go to a women's hockey camp. I had never really played hockey with other women before, and I just thought that it would be something that would be neat to see, uh, you know, what level of skill these girls were at and uh, what uh, just find other women that uh, had a passion for the game like I did. And that really was my full intent. Um in the end, I got seen by the right person at the right time, and magical moments happened because of that. But it uh, by no means did I start with any grandiose plans of ending up on the Olympic team. So, yeah, that's exactly what happened. You ended up playing, uh, in the, uh, going to this camp, and somehow, and if you can explain to us, you ended up being spotted and named to, the, to, the, to Team Canada. Yeah, so it um, was all thanks to a gentleman by the name of Wally Kozak, who was a mentor coach to the very first Olympic uh, head coach, which was Shannon Miller. And um, we didn't have the luxury of having what we have now in in women's hockey and just in sport in general, having scouts right across the country, um, tagging young girls as they're growing up, skilled players, and watching them throughout their career. So we didn't have that. So that first Olympic team really was about finding women in the woodwork who played hockey. And there was often if a a woman was registered, it uh, they were registered in boys hockey and that meant they were counted as a boy it so they didn't really know where the girls were playing or who they were playing with and so despite the fact that i had played triple a boys hockey i had never really been scouted to go on to the next level and because i went to this camp and it happened to be in calgary and that's where the national team was centralized wally kozak happened to see me and encouraged the olympic coaches to come watch me unbeknownst to me and um, he really fought for me to be able to just have a tryout. Um, He just felt like um, I had the skill that um, maybe they uh, was a raw skill at the time for sure uh, but something that they could work with for the future and um, the uh, I guess the rest is history beyond that but it it took that one person to really have that ultimate belief more than I probably even had in myself um, and he simply had seen me at one practice, and he um, fought for that right, and I'm forever thankful for him for that, really that one moment. It took such a, a drastic turn in my life as I had been dreaming about the Summer Olympics, and suddenly I had this, this dream of hockey again, and it was, uh, yeah, it certainly had a huge impact on, on my life. So now you have a, a situation where you have to... Um... Basically, you have an anguished decision of of having to talk to your coach in Stanford, uh, you know, and and you're on a full athletic ride there. Explain that to people that that don't know about that part of the story, because that must have been gut wrenching. It was certainly a difficult decision for me to have to make when I got asked to try out for the very first Olympic team. Um, they were centralized in Calgary, meant that I would have to stay and live in Calgary. Um, and it didn't mean it was a spot on the Olympic team. It just meant it was a spot on the tryout roster. And you're right, I was on full scholarship. School was about to start. Um, I was going into my... Um, think would have would have been my third year in engineering um and you're sort of cycled through at stanford you know you're with the same class all the way through so that was hard just academically making that decision and then financially as well i was on a full scholarship at a a institution that obviously is very expensive and um i didn't want to lose my scholarship and i just felt like i was letting the track and field team down and the coaches had no idea about this other pursuit. And um, luckily, when I called up my coach, Robert Weir, and you know, I talk a lot about this in the book, um, I, had, I thought that he would be angry. I thought that he would be upset. But he himself had been an Olympian, and he understood the value of the Olympic Games and what it meant to simply try. And he encouraged me, despite the fact that I'm sure it wasn't what he wanted, um, he acted on my behalf and supported me and my dreams. And um, I think that that served a a great learning uh, message for me throughout my career that um, often in supporting others, we ourselves can, um, can embody success and we can share that success with them uh, when they uh, achieve their goals. And thanks to him, he, he, allowed me to uh, keep my scholarship when I got back to school while I had to still work in the 
media relations department. Um, I was allowed to keep throwing and really didn't miss much school um, because of the Olympic Games, so was able to go right back into it. I had some professors that were not as understanding, and I had to retake some courses, but um, for the most part, people were pretty understanding, um, even though it was... uh, you know, in California, hockey is not really a big thing. So I was saying I was going to play ice hockey didn't really resonate with people. But um, saying I was going to the Olympics certainly did. And you were playing on uh, the men's club team there, too. Uh, just explain, and I was trying to look this up, too, for those that don't know, including myself, how the club team uh, works in terms of NCAA. Uh, what, what does it mean to be on a club team? For sure. So the uh, club teams essentially are not guided by the NCAA and what it means is different at every school. But at my school, it meant there was no eligibility requirements. So um, we had guys that had played four years of NCAA hockey who were continuing their education, whether due to a master's or a doctorate and uh, could keep playing hockey. Uh, we had um, people doing their PhDs who had been on the team for 10 years uh, because you could kind of keep playing hockey. <laughs> so every school was a little bit different, but the uh, we played in what was called the American Collegiate Hockey Association. So they had some sort of rules within that, and we had divisions. So we played in the Pac-10. So we played against UCLA, USC, the Arizonas, the Washingtons and Oregons. Um, so we played against some big schools, but by no means did anybody go to the school to play hockey. It right. was Club, club sports in general are, um, uh, you know, a step up from intramural. You are representing your school, but it is um, an enhancement to you as a student. Um, it is, you know, part of you, uh, you you're balancing your life out, essentially. And so for me, it was just really a solace, um, a chance to get away from being a full-time engineering student and a full-time athlete on scholarship to throw the discus and javelin hockey was something that was kind of my own thing i could just go and for the hour i was on the ice not think about anything else and get away from things and i think that because i just enjoyed it and saw it in that manner i improved every time i stepped on the ice because i think when you love something that's when you're uh, most able to um uh, improve and and get better at something because you're good you're willing to put in the time and effort I'm going to pass it over to Nate now, and hopefully uh, you can hear him this time. Uh, Nate. What what I wanted to sort of ask was, how much do you hope that readers get the sense of how how much being on a national team is about supporting each other, even though there's this fierce internal competition to get one of those 20, 21, 22 roster spots? Mm, Yeah, I I would... I think not just on the national team, but I think any team in general, any, uh, whether that's in a corporate environment, whether that's in a family, um, that it's not just about supporting others, but really understanding others' um, pursuits. And I think that, you know, had I not gone through the situation of uh, being a third string goalie or being in a position of, you know, sitting on the bench and supporting others, I might not have realized just how many um, roles there are within a team and how each of those roles are so vitally important. And I think within any team environment, whether it's in sports or outside of sports, there is often, you know, each person has their own hopes and goals and dreams. And so within that, there is constantly people that are feeling like they are perhaps not in the position they want to be in or they want to, um, you know, they envy somebody else or are jealous of somebody else because of what they're doing or what they're, the accolades that they're receiving. And I certainly had those feelings. And I talk about a lot about that in the book and the, that raw emotional um, plight that I think everybody goes through uh, to, um, to acknowledge that it is okay to have those feelings. But in uh, acknowledging them, it also, you have to find a solution. You have to find a way to still find joy within um, within the team. And for me, it was about really celebrating other people's success and at times living vicariously through their big moments. And, um, you know, I obviously sitting on the bench at, at times made me see their play and their actions differently than I would have had I been the goaltender, just narrowly focused on what I was doing. So it gave me sort of a full circle approach, uh, perhaps an empathy that most athletes would not have had. 
But then in the end, I think because of it allowed me to really um, to really love the game and to find the joy in the game because I wasn't just finding it for me, but I was finding it for everybody else as well. That That's interesting too. And I was also struck just by how vivid the detail was when you were talking about some of the summer training camps in like PEI and Quebec and <laughs> just how... how like how how much how, how much what did it take to sort of drill down and get that onto the page well so many of my teammates were like how do you remember any of this <laughs> and you know i made sure that they read it before i went to a publisher so that they were not only okay with it but uh that i'd remember the details in the right way and um they so a couple things one is i did take diary notes at the time um so i you know would try attempt to write in a journal and um to sort of keep notes that way so i had some sort of memories that were uh you know the memory can be a fickle thing do you actually remember it or is it because you've read it um like you know, we all i also took a lot of pictures so i could look back at pictures of what we were doing as a team and our team was uh, forced to keep logbooks of our uh, daily training regimen. So what we were doing, the lifts we did, um, also what we ate and how we slept. Um, so things like that that could um, add, provide color to the story were incredibly valuable to me years later because I also talked about the feelings in those moments. And um, I had logged every single goal essentially that had been scored against me, whether it was a great goal or I had angst or um, anger uh, in that moment. Um, so that also helped provide more color. But I really wanted to uh, put myself in in the moment. I wanted to, I tried to write from the perspective of being there so that the reader felt like they were there with me. Um, and, you know, some of the stuff, when I first wrote it and I tried to visualize it and remember it, I got right. And others, I didn't. And my teammates called me out on it to be like, no, that didn't happen in that year. That happened the next year with that a different person. <laughs> and it's funny how you remember things a certain way and you've constructed it in a certain way in your mind. And so I'm glad I got some collaboration to at least know that what is in the book is at least mostly factual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and based on, you know, notes, game tapes, box scores, you try to kind of piecemeal it all together to remember really i mean almost 20 years ago what we were going through as a team yeah it's truly part of the writing process to you know i know myself and nate nate will always you know uh tend to remind me I, i'll remember a blue jay game or something we went to and he will uh then correct me and, and it's funny how exactly you remember things in a certain way and how that comes out in the writing process is kind of fun for sure and i think the one thing you always remember is your feeling Mm -hmm. You always remember the feelings. You just don't know what the construct around it is, you know? And even Jennifer Bottrell and Cheryl Pounder and myself, we all work as professional speakers. We talk about the same team, but our messages are so very different. And the parts that have stood out to each one of us are very different. So I'm sure, like you guys, it's like everybody, the, the mind can play tricks on us at times. And <laughs> we choose to remember certain things for certain reasons, I'm sure. I'm going to ask you about two of the players you played with now, uh, two of the many players you played with. In terms of pioneering women, uh, you played with Manon Rayom on the national team early in your career, and then later on with the Thunder, you played with Justine Blaney. Um, so can you describe who these women are and, and how... I think most people probably, if you were to mention those two names, most people, I think, would probably think of Manon Rayom. But describe how both of these women help trailblaze a path for people like you? For sure, yeah. Um, great analogies between those two women. I think that with Manon, Manon was a really a hero to an entire generation. Men and women knew her alike uh, because she played in the NHL. So in 92, she uh, played with Tampa Bay, and that was, a, that was a huge newsworthy story right across, really, North America. And that's how most of us knew about her. This was before social media. And so for myself as a young goaltender at the time, she was exactly where I wanted to be. So um, seeing her as a role model and a mentor uh, was something that came very naturally. I mean, it, she was, for me, the pinnacle of women's hockey. Now, I knew nothing about women's hockey. And it isn't until reflection years later that I realized that the women that were elevated to a higher status in that era, they were done. It was done so because they played with men. So Menno played with, uh, obviously, in the NHL, 
with Tampa Bay. And uh, Haley Wickenheiser is another big name that people know because she uh, pursued uh, a men's pro career over in, in Europe and obviously was a, a great female hockey player as well. But, you know, people tend to know the names because they played male sports. And uh, people maybe like Jaina Hefford, who was just recently inducted into the um, Hockey Hall of Fame, Danielle Goyette, names like that that were the pinnacle of our sport as well. Uh, they weren't household names because our our games weren't played on national TV. They weren't uh, covered publicly in the um, in the newspapers, and uh, they just didn't know as much about them. So that's what I really tried to delve down to in my book is to really showcase these women that perhaps you don't know about, perhaps the ones that you know our team, but do do people really know the characters that went into that entire team? Now, Justine Blaney is another interesting one because when I was 10 years old, I can remember being at home and my parents clipping out uh, the news article that she had won her um, Ontario Supreme Court case to be able to play with the boys. And because of that, that changed minor hockey for me. So, uh, at the time, I would have had to quit playing boys hockey at 12 and uh, got on to play senior women's hockey, which meant I would have had to play with over 18-year-old uh, women. So, I mean, adult women at the age of 12. And I didn't want to leave my friends. I didn't want to leave the guys that I you know, played hockey with and that I went to school with. Um, and so because she won that Supreme Court case in Ontario, that changed the rules in Manitoba. And so that had a huge impact. While I never knew her, I never knew her skill. I didn't know the plight that she had gone through. It uh, dramatically changed the course of, of my life. And so getting to play with her all those years later on the Brampton Thunder, um, she was, you know, just another player. Uh, she actually uh, was not able to play hockey for three years in the middle while she was going uh, through the court case uh, because um, it was uh, she wasn't allowed to join the team. And so she herself as an individual and her hockey skills, I think, really suffered. I mean, she had to go through more than any other woman that I know at the time in order to plead her case to be able to play. And it was very divisive in the women's hockey community. Because within the women's hockey community, people stood up and said, no, she shouldn't be playing with the boys. She should be playing with us. Why is she not choosing to play with us? And she was just this young girl who, just like me, wanted to play with her friends and um, didn't know why that wasn't possible. And so she went through a lot personally and publicly. And getting to meet her all those years later was just such a, um, an amazingly full circle moment for me and getting to know her as an individual and her strength and resilience and her character. Um, you know, she was just a player in the league for most people. But for me, she had made such a huge impact on myself. Um, and those are just two of the stories of these women. Many of the women that, you know, are never uh, heard from because they were told they couldn't play and there was just no option. Um, but it's uh, these two women uh, really pushed it and had a good support network around them, a good family uh, structure that allowed them to really push and push and push and uh, take women's hockey to the next level. So I'm going to just switch it to a, a bit of a lighter note, if I can, and, and tie, <laughs> tie in Manon. Uh, do you know that she has a, a children's book uh, uh, coming out? Yes. And are you, are you, how competitive are you guys? Are you hoping to beat her in sales? <laughs> the most book sales yeah <laughs> well i i did see that that they were coming out kind of around the same time um and i i feel i still have this reverence for menno like she is still this iconic superstar and really our paths really only crossed for a couple years um, but every time that i would see her whether it was i played a lot of roller hockey with her in california i just always felt like she was um in another stratosphere so I, I would like to think and hope that her book um, sells out, especially across Canada. But after she um, left the national team, uh, she uh, married and had children and lived in the States. So um, within Canada, I feel like her her history and her story has been lost. It, it really just in the last couple of weeks has been brought back up uh, because it was the 28th anniversary of her playing with Tampa Bay. Um, and I hope that everybody else can uh, buy the book, her book, and see the reverence 
that um, I had for her, but also the impact she had on an entire generation of female hockey. So, um, yeah, I mean, I if I could get a fifth <laughs> of the book sales that she does, that would be great. Awesome, Nate. <laughs> yeah, and and speaking of coming full circle, I. Uh, there's been so much uh, progress with acceptance and respect for for the women's game but uh, what would you hope that people who read your book appreciate about the hockey women produce well they'll sometimes I think I heard one player Taylor Woods your fellow Manitoban actually say she's Mm -hmm. you know juggling three jobs while she was playing in the Dream Gap tour last year what would you hope people come to appreciate about the hockey women women are producing the caliber of play well you know having to you know often you know, make these sacrifices in, 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 in their personal life? Well, I hope with the book I, I could really showcase um, the diversity of women um, and personalities that we had within the team that, um, you know, we had a PhD student, uh, Therese uh, Brisson, who was a tenured professor at the University of New Brunswick, who had to leave her tenured professor job to try out for the 98 Olympic team. Um, I mean, that's, that's just an incredible story of sacrifice and of really pursuing a dream and that these are choices that we're all willing to make. I think sometimes in women's sport, we tend to say, woe is us, or, um, you know, look what we have to do. But the reality is that we also love it. We love playing and we will do whatever it takes to play the game that we love. And, um, that could be hockey, that could be any sport, it could be dance, it could be uh, pursuing the national ballet, it could be, you know, any whatever it is. I think that everybody that is privileged and lucky enough to find a passion in life, um, there's nothing like it. And you will do anything. You will sleep in your car. Um, you will uh, pursue it at length to be able to do it at the highest level um, and to find that joy. So. Um, I hope that I can showcase that uh, these the women um, that are the superstars are there for a reason, but there's another entire team of players that perhaps you don't know that have various different stories that, um, you know, some had to leave the game before they should have had to, uh, while others were able to play it for a long time. Um, but every story is different, and every single person has a story to tell. And that goes uh, full circle to the girls that are playing now in the um, Pro Women's Hockey Players Association and in the NWHL. They all have a story, and they all have uh, a, a diverse um, background that brings them to this moment in time for the shared experience. And ultimately, that's what I think is the benefit of playing a team sport whether it's hockey or any other sport, is to be surrounded by people that, while we share a passion, are very different. And it allows you to interact with people that you might not have normally in your own group of friends and to learn about each other um, and uh, to have a respect, ultimately just to have a respect for each other that allows you to have shared goals and and move forward together. And, um, yeah, it's... uh, Everybody has a story to tell, and that doesn't change nowadays. Um, and each one of the women that continue to pursue sport at the highest level in North America, um, to me, it's uh, such a uh, incredible uh, notion uh, to sacrifice everything to pursue a passion. I'm just so humbled that I got to be part of that, uh, that legacy and that era for such a long time. And another one creative decision with the book that I that that I, I really liked was just how you would you know be talking about a Canada US A game and then it would kind of be interlaced with like a recollection from say your you know foundational years in Winnipeg. Uh, what went into deciding to go go that route? Yeah, it um, it kind of just morphed into that. I think initially when I first my first writing of the book, it was totally chronological, and so I had started um, as a youth and kind of built my way up, you know, into minor hockey and then in uh, to Stanford and then onto the national team. And um, I just I didn't like how the book started. I didn't like um, that. You know, having worked for so long as a professional speaker, uh, we are taught to 
to provide a hook right off the bat. And so I wanted, I wanted some sort of hook. And so I bring the re- reader initially right from the get-go into my very first tryout. And so that meant that there's a whole um, part of the book that was not included. And so I had to figure out how to kind of include um, the, uh, I guess, the personality traits and the lessons that I had learned growing up. Um, into the actual book and I thought that they melded very well with certain sections of the book and so that's what I tried to do is to tag some of the um, what I call flashbacks uh, with moments that were current that were happening presently in the book so you know there's a time where I'm walking into the opening ceremonies but I flash back to remember watching the opening ceremonies with my family um, so that the reader gets a real uh, feeling of why is Sammy feeling these emotions and who is she as a person um, which gives you a little bit of foreshadowing as to what will happen next because you have a little background of who I am and um, you know, what the, the, how I reacted to situations in the past obviously come full circle in the present. In terms of the writing process, uh, how did uh, Dave Bedini of uh, the West End Phoenix and the Rio <laughs> Statics uh, factor into the way, the way and the style and the structure of writing this book? So, uh, nothing, <laughs> honestly. But what Dave provided, um, so I first, I feel like I've met Dave through various different functions back in the day. I didn't know him that well. And when I became GM of the Toronto Furies in, I guess it would have been the 2017-2018 season, 2018-2019, maybe. Mm-hmm. It all gets sort of melded, but <laughs> we'll say a couple of years ago. I became the GM. And um he emailed me out of the blue and he said, Sammy, it's always been my dream to do play-by-play at hockey games. Would you be willing to give me a trial? And at that point, we didn't have games live streamed. We didn't have uh, anybody paying for that for us. And so here I was with Dave Bedini of the Rio Statics uh, wanting to volunteer his time with our team. And I thought, we need to make this work. However we can make this work, we need to make this work. So we scrambled to get a live streaming um, uh um, company to um, do our games and uh, get some sponsorship money for that and he came in and uh, on his own volition uh, volunteered his time to do play-by-play uh, for our games which was amazing because the way he described games is exactly the way he writes his books and um, he goes into so many different details than you would see on say Hockey Night in Canada or what but he's such a women's hockey fan and his wife plays, um, and they're just uh, so entrenched in the downtown Toronto hockey music scene, um, Toronto music hockey scene. I don't know the way you say <laughs> it works that. Works both but, ways. Um, that uh, they know, you know, a lot of the characters within the game, and we had a lot of mutual friends, and so I got to know him throughout that year, and um, it was at that time too that my daughter was about to start kindergarten, and I had this manuscript on my shelf that I'd written. Um, basically in 2010, so it had been seven years at that point. And I was just talking to him about how he decided to publish versus self-publish. You know, as a speaker, professional speaker, a lot of my speaker friends simply self-publish and they um, sell it at the back of the room. And, um, you know, he just really encouraged me to um, use this voice, to use this platform for not just hockey but women's sport in general um and he felt like the time was right and so what he did for me which i am so grateful for was that he um pursued publishers and asked around just having been in that world um and he was the one that found me uh my publisher michael at ecw press and he took a chance on me and um so while dave had uh you know, had the book was basically written by the time I met him. He was the one that encouraged me and pushed me to uh, publish with a mainstream publisher um, because he felt like this was needed within the historical reference of hockey and that women deserve to be on the same platform as, say, a Johnny Bauer book or a Cujo book. They should be writ- They should be in the bookstores alongside them. So, um, yeah, it was thanks to him that I, I think I... I had that courage to then pursue it that way. I'm going to actually ask you now, uh, on that note, to please read uh, from your book. 
today, and I oh, believe yeah. you have a, uh, a segment to read uh, regarding the World Championships. Yeah, so I actually I picked a little bit earlier than the World Championships because oh, okay. I felt like um, – I wanted to make it a little bit funny for the readers. So um, I'm going to read a couple uh, pages about um, what would have been my first, we call it Three Nations Cup back in the day over in Finland. And um, I had gone to the Olympics in Nagano, but I had been the third string goalie. Um, so over, I'll just set it up a little bit. Over in Finland, we had played against the Americans uh, one time. It had been my game and we won the game. So it was my first time playing the Americans and we had won. And... Um, we had to play them twice because we played both the Americans and Finnish team twice. And then the champion was the one who um, played the, or won the most games. Okay. So that's the setup. But here we go. So Kim plays the second game against Finland. I set up at the end of the bench in the backup goalie's regular spot. I'm freezing. The rink is bitter, bitterly cold. Unable to move from my spot, I get colder and colder as the game wears on. As we finally secure an 8-4 win, I can barely cheer because my lips are blue and frozen. The following game, Kim is up again because our opponents are the Americans, and it's her turn to play them. This time, instead of the regular long johns and t-shirt under my gear, I layer up with a pair of sweatpants and my giant yellow hooded sweatshirt. I put on an extra player socks over my arms, under my jersey, and wear my neck warmer. I also make sure to grab the biggest mitts and coziest toque I can find. I snuggle myself into the end of the bench, all toasty warm, as the game starts. The Americans score quickly to start the game. I try to encourage my teammates. It's still early. The game is back and forth affair, and we are getting great opportunities in their end, but can't find the back of the net. The game is back and forth, but unfortunately the Americans beat Kim again at the 16-minute mark of the first period. It's only 2 nothing, Not an insurmountable lead, but we need some energy. We need to capitalize. Without warning, our new head coach, Danielle Savageau, an assistant in Nagano, screams, Sammy, you're in, and gestures towards Kim. I look around to make sure she's talking to me. What's happening? Is she pulling Kim? Sammy, get in there, she repeats. Danielle is a former undercover cop from Montreal and is fully versed in the stern man voice she's just laid on me. I'm startled into action. Robin McDonald, the team's equipment manager, hurriedly brings me my glove and blocker. I pull off my toque and neck warmer and reach my hands in my frozen goalie gloves. I scramble to get my helmet on, adrenaline pumping. As I make my way to the net, my yellow hooded sweatshirt flaps behind me. Fear must have been the spark we needed because our young team plays with new sense of purpose. Jane Hefford scores to bring the game within one. The period over, I make my way to the change room, trying to avoid odd contact with the coaches. I feel bad for Kim. Only two goals and she gets pulled. Her first game against the Americans, it doesn't seem fair. Ken Dufton, the defense coach for this tournament, pulls me aside before I can escape into the room. He shakes his head disapprovingly at my layers of clothes. Make sure you do whatever you have to do to be ready for this period. I frantically take off my equipment as my teammates stare. I have no time to laugh. We're down 2-1. Most can't believe the coaches pulled Kim. I must disrobe nearly completely to get my sweatsuit and all the extra layers off. I hurry to pull up all my gear before the coaches come back in. I'm not only completely warm from a period of play, but now I'm sweating from uh, speed dressing. I'm used to having go my brain go from 0 to 100 in the blink of an eye from a lifetime of training and running from one sporting activity to the next. And now more than ever, that preparation comes into play. Our team rallies. I managed to keep the Americans at bay while relishing my second opportunity to play against such a formidable opponent. The Americans outshoot us in the second, but May Lanley is on, on the board again, scoring late, late on a pass from Karen Nystrom. We head back into the dressing room after the second period with a draw. New game. Sweet pass, Nystrom, I say as she takes her helmet off. Nystrom, a gritty winger from Scarborough, who has been a member of Team Canada since 1992, always seems super serious, but she gives me a wry smile. It feels like my game, like my team to lead. I'm such a different person when given the reins. There you go. That's great. <laughs> That's Thank great. you. That's great. Uh <laughs> Now, uh, goal now goaltending. I'm, I'm actually the brother of a goalie, <laughs> and, and, when oh, she, yeah. and when she was in minor hockey with the Kingston Kodiaks. Oh, way, and it's a it's a girl. That's awesome. Yeah, way, your sister is a goalie. Yeah, way, yeah, way back when she always preferred it if the team, you know, didn't have another goalie. Like she's like, I don't want to, I don't want to share the net with anybody. But, but <laughs> yeah, that that's like the best scenario for a goalie. Yeah, and, and just to give an idea. Our listeners' idea of how much has that changed? I think a, you know, a couple seasons ago, one of my high school classmates, her daughter's a goaltender. She had to beat out six other goalies to get on like the, the <laughs> Kingston, yeah. the Kingston Bantam team. Uh, now, now, of course, it's unique because you know they always refer to having a goaltending partner, but ultimately only one person can play at a time. I, 
just wondered what the conversations were like with when you, because I think you said you sort of let Kim St. Pierre in on, you know, what you were planning to write. Yeah, so it, um, I think our relationship has grown stronger since playing together. You know, when we're, when you're forced to, constantly battle against somebody it is a difficult situation um but you know i always had the utmost respect for kim we just were in different social circles and even when you're playing um and when you're practicing as a goalie you're in the opposite ends of the rink like you don't actually ever get to see them and in the dressing room the coaches usually put the goalies in the bigger stalls or in the corner stalls um so you're not even really necessarily exposed to them that often um and, you know, I, I said to her uh, as I, uh, I let her read the manuscript because I wanted her to be okay with it all. And um, I said to her, it's too bad because I think we would have been really great friends, you know, and um, that doesn't mean that we can't be in the future, but um, she just is such an incredible uh, person that I, at the time, um, didn't really take the time to get to know because I, I wanted to be where she was constantly. Um, and that doesn't mean that we, you know, like I said, we weren't friends, but you're, there is that constant competition. Um, and I think that that was like that in a lot of positions, you know, forwards who um, maybe wanted, you know, if you're sentiment and you want to be on the third line, but you're on the fourth line or you want to be on the power player, you know, it's hard to uh, uh, come to terms with the two dichotomies, which is you're fighting for a spot with that person but you have to be a teammate and support that person. Um, the better that they are, the better that you will become, but their failure means your success. And those are, I think, uh, emotions that can relate to everyone. I mean, that is everyday life for people. Um, anybody that's part of a family or part of a workplace environment knows exactly what those feelings are like. And um, it is, I think, something that needs to be talked about more um, and, uh, is difficult at times to come to grips with because you so badly want the team to be able to go on without you uh, or not to be able to go on without you. And they do. And, you know, finding your role and finding your place. For me, it was about being able to be there for others um, and support Kim the best way I knew how, which was to cheer from the bench, um, tap her on the pads when I could. Uh, but I tried to not... Um, allow her to see the hurt or the sadness either because I, I never wanted it to der derail her in those moments um, but I'm sure she knew and just like when I talk in the book about uh, getting to play in the 2000 World Championships and the coaches told us together and my first initial reaction is you feel terrible for the person beside you whose dreams are dashed but you have to be proud of what you've accomplished and that's you know that's hard to do at the same time um but every team goes through that, and I think every person goes through that. So I tried to make it relatable so that people could see themselves in the story as well and um, that it wasn't just about our team, but it's about coming to terms with your own emotions as well. Yeah, and Nate uh, brought this up in our intro that uh, we recorded prior to talking to you, and, and there's that great quote that struck me as well when I was reading this, which is, quote, my Olympic experience changed me, and we're talking about O2. I am more intensely aware of sadness, more empathetic to others, and more aware of the necessity to create my own happiness. And I, I believe that's exactly what you just articulated, essentially right there for us. Mm -hmm. I think that that really is the crux of the, the whole story is had I not gone through these different roles, I don't think I would have uh, become the person that I became, for sure. I would have, um, I think it's important for every leader to also um, know what it's like to be behind, to be the person supporting, um, to know what it's like to sit on the bench, and to know what it's like um, to have those feelings. Because I think that the more empathetic a leader uh, can be, I think the, the more success a team can have. And um, I'm naturally a very competitive person and I, I don't think I, um, I lend myself well to supporting others. It was something that I had to learn and I had to um, be forced to, um, because of circumstance, and had to realize that if I was gonna stay on the team, this is what I was gonna have to do. And uh, my husband will tell you that, you know, we go for a little kayak down um, on Lake Ontario and 
I want to I want to race them the entire time. I want to I can't just sit and look at the fish or the turtles. Um, I need to constantly be competing and pushing myself. And I think what having played these various different roles within the team has taught me to do is to um, to be patient, to sit back and to um, to support others and to enjoy the moment and enjoy the journey and to be okay with where you are presently without always thinking about um, how do you beat somebody or what's the competition or what's the next thing that we can achieve. Sometimes it's just about being present in the, in the moment. And those are lessons that have served me very well right now in the pandemic that, you know, when my daughter asked me to play, um, pretend unicorn invisible mermaid <laughs> for the 20th time i can still be present and i can be in that moment because that's her moment and i want to be there you know for her just like back in the day i wanted to be there for my teammates to help them achieve their success and their goals so with the time we have left i'm going to just run through uh some of the other questions we had with you um or we for have sure. have for you so some of them, uh, you know, they're, 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 well, I'll start with this one. Um, in terms of international competition, um, I think most people, when they think of women's hockey, think of the Four Nations, the Four Nations Cup, Canada, USA, Finland, Sweden. Now, the Swedes have dropped off a little in the rankings. What countries maybe the average person doesn't know about is emerging or are emerging uh, to give this, uh, give women's hockey internationally parity? So I think that. Um, as societies in general start to treat their women um, perhaps the way that they are treated in North America, um, those countries are going to start to emerge as powerhouses. So um, sport, uh, countries such as Russia and the Czech Republic still have a long way to go in terms of equality. But as they start to push those uh, those uh, barriers, I think we will start to see them emerge as hockey powerhouses in the women's game because they already are in the men's game. Okay. Uh, but then there's the unknown countries that maybe aren't as um, prevalent in the men's game uh, that are very good hockey countries, such as Japan. So Japan has a lot of players playing over in North America um, and uh, has a, a love for the game that I think is uh, unbeknownst to most over here. And despite this, their men have never really um, come on the world stage, but their women have been to the last two Olympic Games. And uh, that's a huge coming from a country such as Japan and maybe not a known hockey powerhouse. But women within their country are given uh, the same opportunities within the sport of hockey uh, as their male counterparts. And um, that goes a long way. So as federations start to invest more in the women's games and women's sports, you're going to start to see those countries emerge. And um, that is as much of a societal shift as it is um, a sporting shift. So um, while we in, in North America still have uh, a ways to go for equality, um, it is we're so fortunate uh, and uh, lucky and privileged to be in North America as women, uh, where there is still a glass ceiling, but we certainly have pushed our way much closer than in some countries where um, there still is such a, a gender divide. Now, as someone who, you know, in this, I guess, summer of 2007 was putting in 50 hours a week to get the Canadian Women's Hockey League up off the ground, uh, coming out of the pandemic, you know, what sort of window of opportunity do you see for for the women's pro game so what i'm hoping will come out of um the pandemic is perhaps some conversations that um had not happened prior you know i think right now unfortunately there's two sides to pro women's sport uh pro women's hockey and that's unfortunate because um if just the two sides could come together i think that we would get we'd move forward faster but that might never happen and that's okay um but what i do hope does happen is that uh the current crop of female hockey players don't miss out on the opportunity to have the amazing experience that i had through club hockey and that simply is you know sitting in a dressing room with uh, your friends that's going on road trips that's uh, fighting for a championship that's narrowly missing out um, on a playoff berth. that's you know all the things that go along with simply being part of a team I don't want this crop of players to miss out on that so hopefully we get back to 
women's hockey soon and um, there is something for them and they can figure this out quickly. It's hard as a alumnus and, you know, a veteran player to not be part of those decisions anymore. Um, but maybe that's a good thing. And maybe it's, you know, up to the current generation to decide what they really want and figure it out. And um, we'll always be there if they need any help. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I'm excited to see what does come out of it because I think something will come out of it that's really great. To the to the person that um, isn't as uh, you know in tune with the nuances of sport or the women's game, can you just give me a brief uh, explanation to someone who who wouldn't know what the Dream Gap Tour is? <laughs> right. Okay. So. If you have about five hours, I could tell you about the plight of women's hockey right now. But quickly, within 30 seconds, there are. We had the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Uh, it existed for 11 years. Um, uh, at some level, we went from a budget of $350,000 to a budget of $3.5 million. In the end, uh, the board of directors decided to stop the league people say why did it fail i don't think it failed i think that it um, was um, not managed correctly to be able to succeed so that is sort of that's the reality of what happened from that there was an entire league of players looking for something else Uh, there was another league in the states called the national women's hockey league which had been in existence for approximately six years Many of these players had played there um, and had had a, what I will say, a personality rift with the owner of that particular league. Uh, They don't like her. And so they didn't want to go back and play in that league. So they opted to uh, um, approach the NHL and want to come under their umbrella. And that is essentially their full goal in the Pro Women's Hockey Players Association is to come under the umbrella of the NHL. Right. And so what they've done is they've decided to just um, not play in that other league and hold out and wait until the opportunity exists for the uh, under the NHL umbrella. So the Dream Gap Tour last year was essentially a way for the girls to still hone their hockey skills. Um, while still promoting hockey in a relative way in minor um, cities across North America. Uh, But they didn't really get to play much. And this year, I think what they're going to do is create actual teams within that um, Pro Women's Players Hockey Association um, and actually have teams play against each other, uh, but not really a full league. So it is in this limbo of national team girls Um, who are paid to play uh, because the national federations are giving the money to play and training full-time. And then there's a whole other group of women that are sitting out hoping for something better but are not being paid at all. And then there's National Women Hockey Players, National Women's Hockey League Players, which has now expanded to Toronto, who are making between ten dollars and $15,000 a year to play. Um, And then there's sort of a divide between the two. So it's such a uh, psychological dilemma for the player as to where do you want to play? What do you, do you want to play? Do you want to wait and hope for something better and uh, sit out for what potentially could be in the end? And I don't know what I would do as a player. It is a such a dilemma. Um, I believe in both sides, and I think that both sides have some real solid arguments. I just hope at some point those two sides can come together so that we can see the best of the best playing against each other um, right here in Toronto or wherever you happen to live. So I, know, I don't know how quick that was, but that's that was good. Uh, it in a synopsis. So I know you have a, a big day with a lot of interviews slated. And um, so, and I have a number of questions. I know Nate does too. So again, I'm going to try and keep these quick and you can answer them in, you know, in whatever way you'd like. Um, All right. I'll uh, give you five seconds for each uh, one. Awesome. Is that you want oh, yeah, like I'm gonna, you're, I, I can't wait to see you answer this question in five seconds. Um, so uh, uh, there's a, at the end of the book, I, again, another p- part that struck me was what you talked about Hockey Canada and, uh, you know, the current roster and, and people being made to conform to the mold or left off the roster and, and less kind of the rebellious nature of when they had to, to pick uh, women during the time when you got to Nagano and, and after that. Could you kind of explain that conformity and 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 how and and your thoughts on that? For sure. So I think that that is pro sports to a T, um, and that is male sports as well. I think women's sports just we've now elevated to such a level that there are so many 
people vying for your spot, that there is no longer the uh, feeling that as an athlete you can step out of line. And I think that that's what I allude to is that um, it is, you tend to fit yourself into a mold. And I even found myself doing that at the end of my career, that you become a different person because you think that's what they want you to be. And maybe it is what they want you to be as well, you know, and that could be on the ice. You become a four checker when you've been a defensive player your whole life. Uh, but it could be off the ice as well. You know, maybe it's somebody that um, sits in the middle of the bus because they feel like that's where the coaches see them being more serious. Um, and it just, it tends to slowly but surely permeate your personality and change your personality within the construct of the team. So what I try to um, encourage current national team players or current athletes at the elite level to do is to have some balance in their lives where they have friends outside of the sport where they feel like they can really be themselves. Because I think that happens also in a workplace environment where you are conforming to what um, you feel like needs to be in that uh, to get yourself ahead. And that's okay. I mean, it's okay to, um, you know, perhaps change to fit the bold. Um, however, I think what is really important is that there's somewhere in your life where you feel like you can be you. And I think that that's really important or psychologically, it's going to just take a toll on you. And I know it did for a lot of us in our situations, but we tried to do a, I tried to do a good job of, um, having friends outside of the sport that I could uh, just be me with, that I could, you know, complain to and that I could, you know, would be there for me no matter what. And um, so that I could keep that apart from the team and just be that, um, you know, good soldier that uh, was helping the team move forward and not derailing the team in certain moments. Nate? Yeah, and, and the role I play... That, that was not five seconds. That's okay, but... <laughs> that's okay. Go ahead, Nate. It's five o'clock somewhere. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I know, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the role, now, the role I played, uh, the book's dedication is to your parents, Pat and Rod, for, quote, encouraging play. I, I think, you know, our listeners would probably be interested to know, how, how do you put that into action these days as as both a parent and as someone who whom I understand is a, is a high-scoring forward these days in the Oakville Recreational Hockey League? <laughs> High scoring forward, that would be funny. If I can get a goal in a season, that would be a good thing. So I think I still play because my parents, um, you know, taught me to really enjoy the game. And in our family, we you had to do well in school uh, in order to play sports. And any time that we came home angry or mad or upset, my parents would be like, well, why are you doing it? You don't have to do it. And so that was the biggest thing that is to just try to find that – that passion and my parents were not hockey people um but they exposed us to a ton of different sports and so that's what we uh my husband and i who's also a men's sledge hockey player has been to five paralympic games what we want to do for our daughter is expose her to a various different um amounts of activities from uh music to art to sports um and try not to impose our will or our passions on her and allow her to find them that doesn't mean that we won't expose her to hockey although she hates it right now Um, (laughs) but that hopefully we can expose her to enough things that she finds what she loves and that's ultimately i think as a parent all you really want for your child is to see their happiness and their joy when they're pursuing something that they love doing and, you know, I don't know if we'll do it right, um, but certainly my parents had a unique ability to um, never complain about being the taxi service, that they were taking us from one activity to the next. I, you know, I don't know how they did that for so many years. Um, but in the end, both my brother and I found things that we loved doing and uh, were allowed to do them. I mean, both financially, we were very lucky to be in a situation where we could, um, but we also had uh, parents that sacrificed themselves through all of that to um, get us to the to the rink, to the swimming pool, to wherever it happened to be. Um, and that's not easy. You know, I'm already finding it with our daughter that it's, you know, it's hard to decide what to sign them up for uh, because you have to drive them there and you have to get them there and um, you know what does that mean for the future and just really listening is hard when they're four or five six years old um, but we're going to try our best and I guess as parents that's all you can do. 
So here is my our, our last question to you. There's many more, but uh, uh, you know, time constraints. So I'm going to ask you this this very poignant and hard hitting question to to end our episode of Sports Lit today with you. Are you ready? I'm ready. When you look back on wintry weekends in the 1980s, what comes to mind first? Hockey night in Canada or Lance et Compte? <laughs> Lance et Compte, I can remember sneaking into my parents' bedroom with my brother and um, watching it on low so that they wouldn't hear us watching it. We love that show. <laughs> so what was, tell tell the viewers what Lance et Compte was all about. Lance et Compte was just a French show that uh, centered around hockey and it was the first show probably way too mature for us as little kids but we saw hockey on tv and we thought it was so cool but we were like 10 years old watching basically a soap opera <laughs> <laughs> amazing any anything um uh you want to add i know that you know you train during sars so there's a tie-in right now with uh what's going on with the um pandemic you know you kind of can relate to what these athletes who are working towards tokyo uh and essentially towards beijing to a lesser extent are going through um, but yeah, anything, anything you want to add about the process of writing the book, what you expect to see out of it, something on the, you know, maybe your relationship uh, with SARS and, the, and this pandemic, anything you want to add before we, we go? Well, I think you guys have done the full gamut, so I really appreciate it. Um, I just, I want people to know the characters, um, and the women that I was lucky enough to, to call friends. And hopefully, you know, you can pick up your book, the book really anywhere across this country. And um, hopefully it elevates women's sport to a whole new platform and showcases maybe women you didn't know anything about prior. And uh, so I just appreciate you having me on, on the show. And um, yeah, it was great to chat. Thank you. And I'm Thank sure, sure there'll Thank be you. lots of people uh, that go to the bookstore and notice that there is a women's hockey book right up there next to the other releases uh, this fall, such as the Rick Vive book that's right, coming right out and, uh, and, and Al Strachan's Hockey Hot Stove and so on. So uh, congratulations, Sammy, and all the best. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care.